Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive by. Yeah. Hello. I like it. I'm loving it. I'm loving my life. Mr. Benny. Yes, ma'am. Another squeaker. Oh, no, Pat. You've got to look at uh. their records. Okay, we played a one in six team. We're talking about Atlanta Falcons. The I Hawk. know, but don't you think they no. should have cr- crushed no. them? No. 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 Okay. We, we right. play the schedule on how it is on the other teams. Oh, okay. Mm. Oh, okay. See? See? We're, we're taking right. it easy. We keep it close for that reason alone. All right. So they're 4-0 and oh away. I believe so, yes. Yeah, they are. They are. Never been 4-0 away in like a really long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes me happy for the moment. Uh-huh, sure. It really, it gives me a little bit of, mm, yeah, Russell. It's really, <laughs> and you know what? I'll tell you what, though. I mean, for most of us, uh if you are a Seahawks fan, and I say that because um, it took me a really long time to be able to say I'm a Seahawks fan, right? Like that. Uh, coming from the East Coast, uh, grew up a Yankee fan. Oh, please don't email me or type anything on my Facebook page about that. Uh, but I was born in the Bronx, Benny. Come on. Hey, you got your East Coast love there. That's fine. Come on. You know, if you're born in the Bronx, you got to be kidding me. I mean, who wouldn't be a Yankees fan, right? You're tough. Going down to the South Bronx, going down to the Bronx, boy, that was now that was a scary trip. <laughs> but you know, here we are today celebrating. And you know what I like to say is there are things that we can do in life to celebrate every day, and there are a lot of reasons that we do that. Um, it took me a lot of years though to understand that I could either celebrate my life and, you know, be like, thank you, God, for it, mm-hmm. or I can be in a resentment of my life. But along the way, I've learned a few things, Benny. I was listening to my, uh, what, what do you call him? Television preacher? Uh, that deal, Joel? Oh, uh, Listen Joel, to Joel this morning? Yeah. Okay. And Joel is like, you cannot let the resentment get in your heart when that when you got something that's happening to you in your life and it kind of creeps in there you got to say no spirit god whatever you believe in take this thing and the reason i'm bringing that up is i learned that along the way it was a lesson i learned but i learned it from an exposure to some teachings that many of you know about, many of you heard about. Today, one of the things that I want to talk to everybody about is, you know, a book that William Shaber put together. And the book that he put together is 
called Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. And that is not the automobile club. AA, the making of AA. Uh, And what is it about? This is a book that reveals some of the most iconic stories of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, what their motivations were, the obstacles they faced, what it was they were trying to do to bring their message of hope to a wider audience, what it was they did not do to do that. And so what William has done is really take this and take the journey and literally take us through the details that many people know and many people don't know. But if you were to read this book, you would be understanding that this is a journey that was taken by several people because they had to do something about their lives turning into a complete shamble. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to be talking with William about this book, but his inspiration for writing it. You know, for many of you, we get ideas to write a book, but we don't write it. Um, And here we are with William, right? Researching, evaluating, Uh, And if he's anything like me, we went down some of the same pathways of research. And yet, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome in his case is the creation of this book and the website, writingthebigbook.com, the creation of AA, that takes us on a journey. And in today's world, Why is the journey that William has taken us on, why is that so important? William, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate you asking me. Um, Once upon a time, I, too, started to do some research. And yet to many people around me, the question was, why are you interested in that? Why do you want to research that? And here's what I want to say, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Once upon a time, in a place in Yonkers, New York, where my first engagement in any discovery about Bill W., I got to visit a place in Connecticut, Kent, Connecticut, a place that was grouped and founded Uh, by Emma Curtis Hopkins or Emma Curtis Hopkins, you know, uh, sister, uh, called High Watch. And I became fascinated with this place, but not for the reasons that people thought, but for some of the contradictions I was finding. So here we are today, and we are ready to talk about the discovery and revelation about writing the big book. What was your inspiration for taking this project on? Because I got to tell you, William, this is a project. (laughs) It was indeed a project. I spent 11 years researching the book, and the last seven of those years I was writing. Uh, And then my wife and I, the lady Sarah, polished that book for another year before it actually got to the publisher. So it was a 
it was a, a serious labor of love, but it was also an exciting thing to be doing. Once I got engaged with this project, I, I found I just couldn't let go of it, it seemed. Um, I'm, a, I'm a rare book dealer, specialized in first edition philosophy books, psychology books, and uh, these days, uh, women philosophers. So uh, at auction uh, several years ago, I bought a copy of, uh, before the big book was published, before Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous was published in April of 1939, yep. they, they multilith copy. They offset printed several copies to be circulated for comments and suggestions and corrections. Yep. And I bought one of those multilith copies. And I couldn't find out how many copies had been printed. In the secondary literature, some people said 100, some 200, 300, 400. I finally got permission to go down to AA, and I was looking in their archives trying to find the invoice from March of, 1930, of, of uh, February 1939 for that particular printing job. Never found that, but I got sucked into the story and, 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 and the amount of incredible information that the archive holds for late 37, all of 39, and the first half of 1939. And most especially, I was intrigued by the fact that I was finding things that contradicted the stories that I had heard over the years. I've got a couple of relatives and, and many friends. My best friend for over 40 years uh, died a couple of years ago. He was 62 mm -hmm. years continuously sober at that point. Mm -hmm. so, so I was up close and personal with a lot of these stories that were circulated. And as I went into the archives and looked at, at the documents in there, they just didn't square with a whole bunch of those stories. Now, I particularly find that absolutely fascinating. My first book was a book about the German philosopher Nietzsche, and I had a similar problem there. Nietzsche's estate was taken over by his sister, who was a pathological liar. And all, <laughs> a lot of those lies got into the record. So I had to go back to those original documents, those original printings of those books, to sort that out. Similarly here, there was a bunch of stories that were told by Bill Wilson, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, about the origins and early years of AA, that, you know, Bill, was, Bill wasn't a historian. Bill was a man who was trying to sell sobriety yeah. to drunks who were dying. Yeah. He, was, he didn't care about the nuances, and he cleaned up these stories tremendously, to the point where at times they were many, many, if not most of his stories, were parables rather than historical recordings. And sometimes they bordered on mythological. He had just gone over right into myth. And you know what? He didn't care. And I don't care, because Bill Wilson was a man of vision. He had this grand, universal, an uplifting, deeply spiritual, life-saving vision. And, and uh, you know, it's almost like when I think about him during this phase of his life, he was, he was almost messianic. You know, he was, he was trying to sell not salvation in the next world, but salvation in this world, right here in the here and now. So the fact that he uh, played loose and fast with the facts, doesn't bother me at all, but it's sure interested and intrigued me as a historian. Yeah, I, I really think it, I, I mean, I think it does. And I think one of the things, and let me ask you about this, is one of the things is that, you know, if you, let's say you come across something that just doesn't make sense, right? There's something that perhaps along the way you've learned and you realize that, wait a minute, this is not true. This didn't happen this way. Why doesn't anybody know about this? Why doesn't anybody know about the way things happened? And, you know, m my discovery was in studying, uh, you know, Marty Mann, you know, to study somebody that was a little bit different in what she did or how she did it and clearly broke away from some things early on. But 
even a nuance that you discover along the way that somebody can't explain gives you a hint that maybe things aren't exactly the way it was laid out. But you're right. Does it really even matter? Does it matter? And that's part of the question, though, isn't it? Because this is a program of truth and honesty. I mean, one of the things I stumbled over was uh, a couple of recordings that uh, Ebby Thatcher made. Now, Ebby Thatcher was the man. Yeah. It was like the original seminal moment of Alcoholics Anonymous's uh, inception and development. Ebby Thatcher goes to see Bill Wilson in late November of 1934, and uh, and he calls up. Bill says he called me up, and he I told him to come over, and he came over. Bill was drinking. Uh, he offers Ebby a drink. Ebby says, no, thank you. I'm not drinking. I'm sober. Bill's... A, flabbergasted, says, what's that all about? Ebby says, I got religion. And they have this conversation about the Oxford group and how he got into that stuff. Wilson, at the end of the conversation, says, I don't know what you got, kid, but it seems like a good thing. I should probably get a piece of that. Ebby Thatcher tells the story, and it's completely different. Just completely different. (laughs) He calls up and gets Lois on the phone, Bill's wife, and they make a date several days in advance for him to come to dinner. And he comes to dinner, he gets to the house, nobody's at the house. Lois and Bill finally show up. Bill's a little lit. Uh, and they sit down to have dinner, the three of them. Oh, and including the woman who's renting the floor or the top of the apartment on the top floor of the brownstone they, they, they own. And uh, so the four of them have dinner. And then they repair to the parlor on the second floor. And Lois finally says, so, Ebby, why don't you tell us what's going on with you? And Ebby launches into this story about how he's sober and he's got religion and blah, blah, blah. Bill walks into the subway and says, I don't know what you got, kid, but it's something I should probably pay attention to. Okay. So when Ebby tells that story, he says, look, I know that's not the story you read in the book that Bill wrote with his story in it. It's not that story. But you've got to remember two things. First of all, you got to remember that somebody was drunk that night and somebody was sober. And I was the guy who was sober there, so I remember the way it went. <laughs> and the second thing he said was, the fact of the matter, it's still the same. So when I, when I came across that, that was, that was really disturbing. It was one of the first things I came across. It was really disturbing. And <clears throat> I finally had to realize that what Bill Wilson was doing was taking out all the extraneous, messy, messy details mm-hmm. and boiling that story down to, one of the foundational truths, as I understand it, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill's story exemplifies the, 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 the central truth that, that the message of recovery can best be delivered, one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. So Bill told a story that, that made that point, that, that, that people who were listening to him telling his story would get that, 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 that this wasn't some doctor, it wasn't a psychiatrist, it wasn't a minister, it was just another drunk who had come in with his solution for his own drinking problem, trying to pass it on to a friend. That's what mm. Bill's story exemplified. And, you know, your book is, by the way, I loved reading this, your book is filled with stories. When we come back, Let's take a journey at some of the other discoveries that William Shaver has discovered and has written about in his book. Things that perhaps you wonder about, uh, whether it's Bill Wilson, whether it's Dr. Bob, whether it's the beginnings of AA, the changes in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or perhaps it is one of the greatest controversies in AA that never 
gets talked about unless somebody knows to bring it forward. Let's take a short break. When we come back, this and much more. We'll be right back. Sometimes being human has its challenges. Our physical health falters, our spirits sag, our dreams don't immediately come to fruition. Welcome to the power of Maximum Medicine Radio. Join me, Doc Martin, in conversations that will blow your mind about healing. In our hit show, Doc Martin addresses the scientific with bridging to the mystical approaches to give you a new narrative about Maximum Medicine. In this live call-in show, we will journey into the extraordinary genius of the human body and talk about other beliefs that impact being your multidimensional self. We seek the seen and the unseen and explore the earthbound and the otherworldly, all with the purpose of calling forth the maximum you. To learn more about Doc Martin and Maximum Medicine, visit www.SharonMartinMD.com. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show, talk radio to thrive by. I am so thrilled to be talking to all of you. We have got talk radio for all of us. Are you ready and willing and able to accept all of the abundance you can muster up in your life? Check us out at drpatshow.com, transformationtalkradio.com, transformationradio.fm. Oh, my goodness. Healing has a ripple effect. One person's healing affects everyone around them. This is where the power of sharing our stories can be so important. Tune in to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge each month on Transformation Talk Radio as Megan provides you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. Enact the power of radical change. To find out more about Megan Edge, visit her website at meganedge.ca. Are you done being afraid to jump into the life that's waiting for you? Are you ready for a real shift? I invite you to tune in every Tuesday with me, Tracy L, on the Tracy L. Clark Show, where we will teach you how to live your extraordinary life. At 8 a.m. Pacific on Transformation Talk Radio, where I will provide the tools and the steps needed to help you transcend perceived limitations and move forward with an extraordinary life. For more information, visit me at TracyLClark.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Writing the big book, The Creation of AA, William Shaberg joining me here today. And William, look, as I said before, uh, people can find out more about you. They can go to your website, which is basically the name of the book, right? Um, And I want to make sure we're giving out that information uh, as well. But also, um, writingthebigbook.com. How can people get a copy of this? Well, the easiest way is to go to that website, writingthebigbook.com, and at okay. the, on the homepage, there's links to pre-ordering the book. The book comes out a week from tomorrow. Pre-order the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or even directly from the publisher, simply by clicking on the, the, the Amazon logo. Awesome. Okay, 
this book has so much information in it. And I got to tell you, it fills in so many blanks for a lot of people. And so, you know, if the show were five hours long, we wouldn't be able to get to everything you have in here. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, you shared one thing about your discovery. You took this on as a research project. And, you know, for me, most of the information that I got I got from a guy that was called Barefoot. So Barefoot's World uh, was one of the um, one of the places that many people would go to to find out sort of the real real deal. Barefoot's no longer with us. Out of what you've discovered, can I ask you this question? What are some of I would say some of the most misunderstood aspects? of the creation of AA that you discovered. And it's not about right or wrong, because I, I, Bill was a, a consummate storyteller, and it was the storytellers that were able to move the initiative forward. So this is not really about dissing Bill W. or anybody else for that matter. It really is about understanding some of the underpinnings and the motivations that kept people moving forward, isn't it? Yeah, it most certainly is. And one of the, one of the, I mean, isn't it an amazing thing? I mean, personally, I consider Alcoholics Anonymous to be one of the most important spiritual movements of the yeah. 20th century. And here we've got all these documents that clearly articulate and show you the, the, the slow-moving but ever-growing evolution of their understanding of the solution to alcoholism, yeah. uh, which culminates finally in the 12, the writing of the 12 Steps in December of 1938. Yeah. Just a couple of months before the book was published. So Bill Wilson called that period from the time he got sober in December of '34, and the book being published in December April of 39. 11. Yes, and, December and, 11. And and April 10th of '39, he called that period the flying blind period. Yeah. My book really addresses <laughs> what was going on during the flying blind period as they were trying to figure this thing out. And it, but it does so based on, on again on primary documents almost exclusively that are found in the archives. The problem with the stuff that was on Barefoot, for instance, is that yes. so much of it goes back to Bill Wilson, and Bill was not. He was, as you said, he was a he was a consummate storyteller. He was not a historian. He left. Nope. He, he didn't do messy details. He was a willful myth maker. He was he was always deliberately going for self-deprecation, trying to take himself out of the spotlight and giving credit to people who really didn't deserve it. He deserved the credit. And he, he left out all kinds of uncomfortable facts. Um, the most important man after Bill Wilson in the creation of the big book, and actually in the evolution of the program, most people would say is Dr. Bob Smith. And that's, to my opinion, that's completely wrong. There's a yeah. man named Hank Parkhurst that when Bill mm. first got back from Ohio after sobering up Dr. Bob. The first man he got sober in New York was Hank Parkhurst in late 1935. And he and Bill were joined at the hip uh, right up through the writing of this and publication of this book. And Hank was the guy who was always pushing Bill, always, always, always pushing Bill. And, and you know, I, I, I say to people who, they say, gee, I never heard of him. I said, listen, you need to know something. No Hank, no big book. That's as, that's as black and white and clear as it's absolutely true. So how come we don't know about Hank Parkhurst? How come this guy doesn't even have a Wikipedia page these days? He was the man, after Bill Wilson, most responsible for the evolution, formation of what showed up in that book and for actually getting that book out in April of 39. 
the reason we don't know much about Hank Parker is six months later he was drunk and he never got sober again. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a, that's Bill also left uncomfortable facts out of his story, and that's an uncomfortable fact that that the guy who was so central to the creation of the message of AA uh, didn't benefit from it himself. Just yeah. But didn't it, didn't they do the same with Marty Mann though? Because didn't they didn't the same thing happen in a similar way? Because Marty decided I'm going to become I'm going to become a spokesperson. I think you know this idea of hiding in the shadows is great for some people, but honestly, it's not the way to get the word out. And I mean, you know, when I think about this, and I and I read your book. And I'm thinking about, holy cow, there are people that were simply beyond instrumental. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like Marty Mann was like on that show, um, gosh, what was that television show where they had to figure out who you are and they ask a panel, uh, which one of these three people are, is an alcoholic, right? Right, right, right. Uh, what, what is that? You know, it's an old, old school show, right? Um, But she is the one that went basically door to door and spoke. And I think that was her sort of parting ways with the program, so to speak. Um, She went on, of course, uh, to create one of the most incredible organizations, the National Council on uh, Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. You know, to this day, it's one of the most profound. Why do you think this was? I mean, because you have discovered story after story after story. I mean, I am like so engaged in this book. I'm like, what? Hmm. Why do you think that was back then? Was it fear? What do you think, especially from Hank's perspective, was it the idea, let's keep this quiet until we've got it down perfectly? What do you think? No, I think, it, well, first of all, what you've told me about Marty Mann is interesting, but she's kind of outside my sphere of research, and I don't know yes. that much about Marty Mann, to tell you the truth. She's just, yeah. she's just not in my zone. Uh, I, I know that the, uh, I, I suspect, at least it's my understanding, that the whole anonymity thing came yeah. from, uh, from uh, people getting just a little bit too full of themselves. It was yeah. an ego sort of thing. And people would go on uh, on radio. Uh, there was an early radio show. Uh, oh yeah, uh, of uh, some uh, some famous baseball player whose name eludes me. Again, it's just just outside the, my area of deep research. And and uh, you know, but if if somebody prominent went out and said, as they do so frequently these days on talk shows, "Oh, I'm sober in AA," and then they drink, then people say, "Oh, see, that oh. program doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work." The second thing was that Bill. I talked about Bill. You know, doing uh, a lot of self-deprecating things. Uh, Bill Wilson yeah. was. Bill Wilson knew he had an ego problem. I mean, at one point he thought about calling it not Alcoholics Anonymous, but uh, the BW movement. You know, he was he was the guy with a large ego. Now that got shot down at a meeting, and I can only expect that it was Hank Parker's who just beat him over the head and shot that down. Mm-hmm. But Wilson, uh, and then of course when people really started getting sober in droves and and hundreds and then thousands and then millions. People just worshipped Bill Wilson. They thought he walked on water. I just can't imagine what it must have been like to live inside that bubble. And it was a bubble. Bill, you know, it got to the point where Bill couldn't go to meetings. 
he couldn't come. He was, he was Bill Wilson, you know. They, <laughs> he'd walk into a meeting, and, and, and people would just fall all over themselves and want him to tell the story of A's origin, which he called the bedtime story. He was always being <laughs> asked to tell the bedtime story. So, so Wilson, Wilson really, really kept taking himself down a notch, taking himself down a notch, taking himself down a notch, and spreading credit around where it really didn't belong. Um, but but I, I think the anonymity thing came out of yeah. uh, uh, that sort of uh, uh, ego reduction. Ego reduction is one of the, you know, one of the most famous lines in, in, in the big book is selfishness, that we thought was the root of our trouble. And, and so if selfishness and selfishness is the root of your troubles, don't go self-aggrandizing yourself, uh, you know, by, by touting what a wonderful person you are now that you're sober and alcoholics anonymous, so... Yeah, it's really interesting to follow it. And to this day, you know, the very essence of uh, any of the 12-step programs, whether it's AA, NA, uh, any of them, is this idea of anonymity. And it it is sacred. It's sacred. Um, it, you know, as somebody, you know, studying in the field of psychology, one of the things I learned from the get-go is that it is so sacred that it is important to really hold the space for that for people that are on their journey. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, how do you get from writing the big book to literally publishing it? That takes money. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll take you on that journey and much more. Uh, and as we take a look at this, we'll join the, the story of what happens when you go down this pathway and how do you, in a program such as this, how is the acknowledgement of the 12 steps perhaps one of the most important evolutions of process, as William has said, that we have to date. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Stephan each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. We remember a time when you could simply form a thought and it would manifest. The harmony was forgotten, but it is returning now. The power of inspiration and awakening radio with Juliet Griffin on TransformationTalkRadio.com each second and fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll take you on adventures through the heart and spirit exploring who we once were. This intuitive healer studied under the guidance of wolves, learning from their wisdom to master a higher frequency for a new state of mind. Visit OneTrueSelf.com. Right now, ask yourself, how far are you from your dream? Are you closer today than yesterday? Entrepreneur and personal coach Deborah Rothschild brings the wit and wisdom to transform you into a new dynamic you. Tune in to the Deborah Rothschild Show, developing a dynamic you. To learn more about Deborah, visit thedebrashow.com. That's the D-E-B-R-A show.com. Tune in live every Wednesday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on transformationtalkradio.com. Do you want the knowledge and wisdom to understand where spirituality, science, and psychology intersect? 
Then join the Karmic Path Radio Show with Tina and Laura on TransformationTalkRadio.com Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Follow this charmingly, disarmingly dynamic duo as they explore how psychic ability, spirituality, and karmic law tie together. For more information on Tina, Laura, and their groundbreaking work, visit thekarmicpath.com. Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. What is a brilliant culture, and how do we create them? Why are they important? Claudette Rowley has created a breakthrough five-step process to help you align your culture with your business strategy for exceptional results. Looking for a culture that drives organizational excellence? Listen to Cultural Brilliance Radio, the second and fourth Friday of each month at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. To learn more or work with Claudette, visit culturalbrilliance.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It's so great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. William Shaberg is joining us here today. He is the author of Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. AA is Alcoholics Anonymous. And this, as I said earlier in the show, William, this is this was a research project. And it is, and, and let me just be clear, it's limited in scope only because this part of your writing focuses on the creation of AA, but writing the big book, right? You know, it, it, it doesn't take on literature that came after this. It really specifically talks about the people that came together to make this work. And, of course, the big book is a foundation, right? The, the basic text of AA, as it says on the dust yep. jacket of uh, the, the fourth, we're up to the fourth edition these days. Yeah. yeah. So here's the deal. Um, people come together, they sit down, and 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 I, this is now me really simplifying it. They sit down and they say, we've got to do something about it. We've got to capture something. We've got to create something in writing. But that's not the only thing that happens. There's an entire journey here of finding funding of trying to figure out how are we going to get this printed? What's going to go in it? Do we really want to talk about God or not? What have you found to be some of the most aha moments for you where you said, well, wait a minute, this is really different. Um, And, you know, there's the conversation about Rockefeller, isn't there? Yeah. John D. Rockefeller Jr. in 1938 was probably the richest man in the world. He was the son of John D. Rockefeller Sr. And uh, they had they had. They had more money than anybody, and uh, and they and by the way, his father and himself had had, had very very substantively supported prohibition uh, and uh, temperance movements before that. So so these are people that were uh, teetotalers. Both of them were teetotalers, the father and son, and and they supported uh, all this uh, all these efforts, these legal efforts to get people sober and to and to deal with the ravages of alcoholism in American society. And of course, by 1933. Prohibition was in effect from 1920 to 1933. By 1933, it had crashed and burned completely, just completely. It had been a complete disaster. And the entire project that actually started shortly after the, the Civil War that culminated in Prohibition in those 13 years 
uh, was a disaster. So now what are we going to do? And here Bill Wilson comes along, and by 1935, 1930, certainly by 1937, he thinks, oh, my Lord, we've discovered a cure for alcoholism. What we need to do is we need to spread this around. We need to get a string of alcoholic hospitals across the country. We need to have paid missionaries, and we need to write a book. So uh, they, they have a meeting in, in Akron in October 37, which is where my book basically starts, and they send Wilson back to New York to raise the money, and he tries to raise money. And he and Hank Parkhurst are running around New York City trying to raise money from the philanthropists who had been coughing up cash for the temperance movement and for the prohibition movement, and nobody, nobody was, was coming through for them. Finally, they, they had associated with four friends, four people actually, who worked for or were closely associated with John D. Rockefeller Jr. And finally, in March of 38, uh, Rockefeller gave them $5,000, and he didn't even give it to give it to AA. He gave it to Dr. Bob out in Akron, because Bob was mm. just in terrible financial shape. But Rockefeller said, look, I'm giving you $5,000, but don't ever come back and ask me for another penny. And they mm. could never get any money. And Hank and Bill kept coming up with these projects and these ideas about uh, marketing and how to, how to get people to actually give them some cash. The first two chapters of the book were written in May and June. Those are because Hank Parker's convinced Bill that we needed two chapters to show these people then and, and how what we were doing and how successful we were with your story and the, and the, the chapter called There Is a Solution. And uh, so the next three months, they, 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 they ran around with those two chapters, got nothing, didn't raise a dime. So in September, Hank decided he was going to get somebody to write an article in a, in a nationally circulated Sunday supplement, newspaper supplement, millions of copies, going to have an article published in there. And in the article, they were going to say, send us a dollar and we'll send you five chapters. Mm. So, so now he goes back to Bill and says, Bill, I've got to give him five chapters if I want a buck. That, that's the only thing. So you've got to give me some more chapters. So on September 15th, Bill starts writing again. And actually, he, he picked up the, 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 the baton and took it all the way to the finish line from September 15th to December 31st, which is when they handed over the original edition, the original manuscript to, to the first editor. And, and, uh, and, and they got that done. But now they got it. You're right. One of the interesting questions that comes up is how are we going to get this book published? And one of the Rockefeller guys had a contact at Harper Brothers with the religion editor down there called Frank Exman. So they, they sent him down. Uh, Bill Wilson and Pank went down and talked to him. And Harper and Brothers made them an offer. They're going to give him a $1,500 advance and 10%, blah, 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 you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Hank, Hank Parkhurst was insistent that they not use a commercial publisher, that they keep control of their literature. That was, he just pounded and pounded and pounded on Wilson about that. And Wilson finally caved and agreed to do that. He really saw the, the wisdom of that. And that was, that was one of the most, one of the most, fateful decisions that AA made, I think. I mean, they still control their literature to this yep. day. Yep. So, uh, so to raise money, because they're, they're not going to get the money out of, out of Harper and Brothers, and they can't get any money out of the, out of the millionaires in New York, Hank, uh, Hank decides they're going to sell stock. And, uh, and they can't <laughs> sell stock. They can't sell stock. Finally, he and Wilson go up to Reader's Digest, and Reader's Digest agrees that they'll write an article when the book comes out. And he goes back to New York with that information, and people slowly start buying stock. So they sell stock in uh, this corporation they call the Hundred Men Corporation, and uh, and that's what finances the writing of the book and gets them all the way up to the actual printing of the book. So now they've got uh, just under five thousand, four thousand six hundred fifty copies of the book printed. They got no money to, to to get them from the printer. 
they have just enough money to get 100 copies out at first. And most of those have to go to the people who wrote the stories in the book and, and these, these other people that are going to get free copies. So it, it was a long time before those uh, 4,650 copies were sold out. It didn't really... Uh, it was two years later when there, uh, the Reader's Digest article never appeared. There was a little misunderstanding there, and it never happened. And that was crushing for both Wilson and Parkers. But two years after the book came out, the Saturday Evening Post published an article, very, very favorable uh, about, article about AA written by a man named Jack Alexander. And once that happened, sales of the book just started skyrocketing, and they started printing and printing and printing. And AA started spreading all across the country. Well, you know, part of this is a story that doesn't get uh, told, and that is uh, of Ruth Hawk and uh, who Ruth was. And you and I were talking during the break, and we were talking about who Ruth was, right? Uh, Whether people have believed her to be Hank's secretary or Bill's secretary. But early on in your book, Enter Ruth. I want to ask you this question, and Benny, we're going to go ahead and skip the break. In your opinion, from, I mean, my gosh, the tons of research you did, how important of a role do you feel Ruth Hawk played? Well, Ruth Hawk was the woman who was doing all the typing as Bill Wilson was dictating what was going into the book. I'm not sure how involved she was with those first two chapters from May and June. But once he started working on the project in September of 38, Ruth Hawk was just completely an integral part of that thing. And Ruth Hawk was, was Hank Parker's secretary. He had a business called Honor Dealers that was, that was located in Newark, New Jersey. So Hank and Ruth are in Newark, New Jersey. Bill's over in Brooklyn. He travels over to Newark to, to spend time there, and he shows up and, 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 and he dictates to Ruth directly. He said, she said, she always was good at shorthand, but she said he doesn't like he didn't like it like that. He wanted me to learn how to type really fast so that he could see it on the on the type page immediately. And uh, and she was always a party to those conversations that Bill and Hank were having about what was going to go into the book, what wasn't going to go into the book, how it should be nuanced. Bill was preaching pretty strongly for a God-centered book. Hank Parkhurst was arguing for a psychological book. And, and, and Ruth was just in the middle of all those things, I know, looking for verbiage and language that might satisfy both of those situations. She, she, was, she was on board and present for, for the big, big arguments about what does and what doesn't go into the book. Exactly how much part she played in the primary documents, there's not much. In 1954, when Bill was prepping for his book on AA history called Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, they exchanged a bunch of letters, and the letters are fascinating. Yeah, uh, with details and without these. I mean, one of the things Ruth says is, "Look, I can't. I, might, I can't remember dates. I'm really terrible on dates." And there's a whole bunch of things in there that are inaccurate in terms of when things happened. And it's just, but but that's to be expected. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. For oh yeah, I can't you know? either. So you know, I mean, talking to somebody, you know, almost 20 years later about that stuff is fine. But the other interesting thing about Ruth and her part into this whole story is that she and Hank started to have an affair late in 1938. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, and one of the things I speculate about in the book, in my book, is that when they were writing the big book, all of a sudden, a couple of places, this, this, uh, this subject of infidelity, marital infidelity, pops up. 
and, and they always seem to be kind of a couple of paragraphs that are shoehorned into the text, you know. And I just, I just wonder who was driving that. Was that was that was that Hank? I suspect Hank was driving most of that stuff. The other interesting thing was that Hank and Ruth took a course at, uh, they say uh, Columbia, but I think it was NYU. Doesn't mm-hmm. not incidental in creative writing. So so she was helping with all of that stuff. Hank, you know, the big book has uh, 11 chapters in the front of exposition, and then there's, there's, there's chapters in the back, a number of tw- almost 30 stories, personal stories. Hank wrote his personal story uh, for the back of the book uh, called The Unbeliever, and it's, it's a stream of consciousness thing. It's just it's, it's like reading James Joyce, for God's sakes. You know, it's like it was his creative <laughs> expression after taking this class. And then the last, the last story in the book is called The Lone Endeavor. And uh, they, they were circulating these multilith copies in February, and this guy out in California gets his hands on one of these things, and he gets sober. Uh, his name is Cooper. And, and, and so he writes to AA, and, and Ruth is writing back and forth to him. And they, so Bill says to Ruth, why don't you take what you know from, about this guy and write a story for the big book? Because here's a guy who got sober just off the book without the up-close personal fellowship. So she writes this story called The Lone Endeavor, which appeared in the back. It was the last story in the first printing of the first edition. It's the only place it appeared. And the reason it's the only place it appeared was because uh, they collected money in the New York meeting to send uh, out to Cooper, this guy, I forget his first name, but his last name was Cooper, so that he could come to New York and tell them all about how he got sober. And, uh, And they sent the money out, and when the guy got to the uh, Port Authority station in downtown New York City. He didn't get off the bus, and they went on looking for him, and he was underneath the seat, drunk. Mm. So the story was invalidated, and it only appeared in the first edition, first printing. But Ruth wrote that story. I want to. I know we're we're kind of short on time, but I I wanted to have a conversation with you about the spiritual nature of Alcoholics Anonymous, but especially as uh, as we're talking about the big book. Um, the idea of Alcoholics Anonymous being a religion, as some people have called, but also the very nature of a spiritual awakening um, and, you know, that aspect of it in, in uh, as you talk about here as well, but the idea of that level of consciousness and using that language, there's a lot of language in this book that's used that if you didn't know it you would look at this from a i'm just going to say let's call it a new thought perspective a lot of the principles in here but the one thing by far that we can at least agree on is that this is a book that has god spirit in the forefront i have two questions for you about it do you think that this was a great challenge for them and then I think this last question has always been a conundrum for me about why it took so long to give Carl Jung credit for the spiritual awakening consciousness perspective in the book. Yeah, I'm not sure why it took so long for Bill to get there. Again, that's kind of outside of my mm-hmm. zone. But the first time Bill wrote about that, Carl, Carl Jung famously says in, in the book as it was published, famously says to a patient, Roland Hazard, who's a drunk yep. and who is, who's had a slip, that, that only people who have had a vital spiritual experience actually get over alcoholism. That's what yep. Jung said. 
Now, yep. the first time Bill wrote that story in June of 1938, it said, didn't say vital spiritual experience, it said vital religious experience. Yeah, right. And, and, and quite frankly, there was a lot more religion in the early, what we would call religion, in the early drafts of the book. But Parkhurst was always, always, always pushing, he wanted a psychological book. Parkhurst, I'm sure, was responsible for toning that down into a vital spiritual experience. He was responsible for the inclusion of higher power where God had been before. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was with being pushed by Jim Burwell, the New York atheist, another long story we don't have time for, to, mm-hmm. to include, as we understood him, God as we understood him in the steps. They appears twice in the steps that way. So, so there was a toning down, uh, most likely, I mean, certainly, certainly in my opinion, driven primarily by Hank Parkhurst, a toning down of, of a real New Testament approach, let's say, to a, a, a Christian, uh, specifically Jesus-based approach to sobriety. And, and that's what happened. But, but, but a vital spiritual experience is, is, is absolutely essential for the understanding of what A is even talking about. My understanding of the two basic premises of Alcoholics Anonymous are this. If you're a real alcoholic, a phrase Bill used with regularity, then you have no defense against the first drink. You've got this strange mental twist. He called it at one point plain insanity. Sooner or later, no matter what promises you've made, no matter what you know is going to happen, sooner or later your real alcoholic is going to pick up a drink. No defense. No defense. Oh, oh, there is one defense. You could get yourself a vital spiritual experience, and if you enlarge it and grow it over time, that vital spiritual experience will get between you and that drink and push it farther and farther away. The longer you stay sober, the longer you're working on your spiritual growth. Yeah. Um, look, there's so much that you've got in this book. It really is. And, and I want to ask you this question. What has been the reaction to folks, especially in the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous community, about the book? Well, the early readers were fine with it, but they were AA historians. They were just delighted that I was doing this uh-huh. primary research and including things like 1,560 citations in the back so you could find out where that information came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book is really going to be officially released a week from tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I'll guarantee you the Ohio people are not going to be happy because I, <laughs> I, it was very, very clear to me that Ohio and Dr. Bob had almost zero to do with the writing of the big book. They were getting a lot of people sober out there. Don't get me wrong. They were getting it done out there. Right. But they really didn't want to have anything to do with this project. They were very vocal about not wanting to have anything to do with this project. And they didn't have much to do with this project. And people in Ohio are not going to be happy hearing that. Yeah, and well, the other thing you also do in this book is you actually print um, the uh, uh, multi-lith printed version on some of this. You really show and demonstrate what was originally here, what changed. So many different aspects of this that people wonder about, right? Because there's so much white space in between the way the story uh, is told and brought forward. Uh, But in the end... The message is really clear, even with your book. And let's talk about that. In the end, after your research, and again, you did focus on uh, the, 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 uh, the writing of the big book, et cetera. So it doesn't really talk about anything that may have happened after uh, or the 12 and 12 or any of that. Um, but my question to you is, after writing this book, 
What is your overall assessment? Has your view of Alcoholics Anonymous changed? And if so, how? Well, if nothing else, when Bill told the story, it was all kind of glossy and, and you know, I, I don't know. It was just it was this, just this miraculous kind of thing that just happened, you know? And it, mm-hmm. that's a great story. It's a wonderful story. But the, but the story told in my book is, 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 is week by week, month by month, and it's a very, very human story. And, and, and I really think the story that I tell is much more miraculous than the story that Bill Wilson told. I got this great quote from Dorothy Schneider. It's in the front of my book. Dorothy Schneider was being interviewed. She was an early member, uh, and she's getting interviewed in uh, 1954 by Bill. She said, the people talk as though there were 100 men, that they went all saintly and were taken straight up to heaven, and God just guided Bill's hand, and Bill just sat there and let the words come through. Actually, it wasn't anything like that at all. And underneath that, I say, no, it wasn't anything like that at all. And my story's way better than that story, in my opinion. It's also much more factually true. Yeah, I want to thank you. Please tell folks how they can get a copy of the book when it's coming out, and also your website. And then last question, what's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? Well, you can find all the information on the book and how to order it on the website, writingthebigbook.com. And I think my personal message is that... uh, Life is a beautiful thing, and we all, need to, we all need to live it as fully as possible. It's one of the things I say on my knees every morning. I want to be as alive as possible today, and I work real hard at that. And I tell you, you worked real hard at putting this book together. This was no simple matter. And it's very clear by the number of citations that you've created and the research that you've done and the resources that you've used and cross-references that this truly was a labor of love at many levels. So I want to thank you, William, for that. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you about it. I wanted to say to everyone, writing the big book, The Creation of AA by William Shaver, joining me here today, we literally touched upon a few things, but we clearly didn't touch upon the many, many other things in the book. There's a lot here, fascinating. And I, I agree with William. I think his version of this is very interesting. So thank you for that. I'm Dr. Pat. For more information about me, please go to the Dr. Pat Show or Transformation Talk Radio. And by the way, we've got another hour coming up right now. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.